up, Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm discussing 604, Hour of the Wolf. But before we get into that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Season 7 and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 6, Episode 4, Hour of the Wolf. everyone. This episode was kind of interesting for me. It was one that I really looked forward to over the course of season six because I just really wanted everybody to see Ian's story so bad. It was something I was desperate for as we approached the end of season five because I knew they weren't going to have time to squeeze it in and they were kind of keeping the mystery element in there. But he's been through so much and his story is so rich that I knew they were going to get it in there at some point. And so whenever I saw Hour of the Wolf come out on the episode titles for season six, I was extremely excited because I knew that's what that was. It's the title of that chapter from the book, A Breath of Snow and Ashes. So book readers had a pretty good inkling that that's what this episode was going to cover. However, it's not my favorite episode of season six. I don't think that has anything to do with the story as a whole. I think it's a beautiful story. I think that John Bell did a great job, but I do think that there were some misses in this episode. So I'm just going to go ahead and get them out of the way up front, just so it doesn't sound like I am bitching at the end of this episode, which is where I normally put my disgruntled moment. So the storytelling scene in the hut where Ian's being super awkward because he doesn't have the words to tell the story that everyone wants him to tell. For some reason, that felt really off to me. I can't say for sure why. I keep coming back to the fact that it doesn't feel earned. It feels a little off, maybe not as earnest as some of the other scenes that we get in this episode as a flashback. But yeah, it just really didn't hit home like a lot of the scenes did for me. It didn't have the emotion. Granted, I liked seeing all the familiar faces that we got in season four with the Mohawk. That was a real treat to see some of those actors being brought back to reprise their roles. The duel with Scotchy was super off. I really found myself thinking, who the heck wrote this and why during that scene? It was so weird and really melodramatic almost. I'm a pretty lenient watcher. I don't judge super harshly because I love the show and I don't like to complain about it because it's one of the things in my life that brings me absolute joy. But sometimes you just have to be honest with yourself. And that's where I was with this episode. It just didn't feel as up to par as Outlander normally is. Normally, I can argue myself out of feeling like something is unreasonable or unrealistic. Not with this scene. This scene was so far past realistic and 
logical next step that I could not reconcile it in my head. So the duel was really off. I think part of the reason why is because of the distortion of Scotchy Cameron's character as he's written in the show. He's a real person. Alexander Cameron was an actual Indian agent back in the 18th century to the Overhill Cherokee. He does make an appearance in the Outlander books. The Alexander Cameron that is in this episode is not that person. I don't know, because I did read the script for this episode, and it didn't quite come across that way in the script. So I think it's really the editing. And I think if I remember correctly, because it was a few weeks ago when I read the script, I think they may have cut a few of his scenes down, like trimmed it for time. And that's why his character doesn't feel as fleshed out as he should in this episode. But honestly, Alexander Cameron was a very respected man and there's not a single bad thing that you can probably find about him in the history books. He was a great advocate for the Cherokee. And the Scotchy that is portrayed in this show is a very twisted version of that, I almost felt like. He's portrayed as someone who likes to indulge and drink a little bit too much, and when he does, he makes rash actions that could be harmful. And he also was portrayed as a dishonorable man in how he turned early in the duel and was going to shoot Kahilotan in the back. I can't abide by making a historical figure worse than they actually are in the historical record. I feel like that's a disservice to their memory and it's not really fair because they're not alive to defend themselves. So that really rubbed me the wrong way the way that he was portrayed in this episode. And I get that there was a reason behind it, story-wise, that they wanted to make Jamie realize that the move west is going to happen. I mean, he's been told by Bree and by Claire that settlers are going to continue to push west and push the boundary. And seeing Alexander Cameron approach him and say, hey, the Overhill Cherokee are selling land. I bought some. Do you want some? That is the embodiment of the push west for Jamie. He sees it happening before his eyes and he knows there's absolutely nothing that he's going to be able to do to stop that from occurring. So I think that's the whole reason that they gave Scotchy the role that they did in this episode, but I still am not okay with it, like I said, for the express purpose that he's not alive to defend himself and say, yeah, that didn't happen. And to make somebody look worse than they actually are portrayed in the historical record is not okay, in my opinion. So yes, that was a miss for me as well. The third and final miss, and then I'll stop my bitching and move on to greener pastures, was the ether storyline. Now, y'all know by my talk in the first episode that I don't mind the ether storyline. That's not what this is about. What I didn't like is that when I watched this episode originally, it was all Jamie and Ian. And it had like common sense back at the ridge time in the beginning before the Indian agent stuff takes place and at the end when they get back. And I was like, yeah, that makes total sense. What made absolutely no sense at all was cutting from a very intense storyline at the Cherokee village to the ridge to portray this ether stuff going on with Josiah and Lizzie Malva and Claire. It was so far past 
shoehorned in that it was almost cringeworthy, in my opinion. And I felt that way when I first watched this episode. And normally when I have that kind of a strong reaction to an episode at first, I make myself rewatch because a lot of times it's that cleansing your palate watch, right? And you have to get all your expectations out of the way, like I've said before. But this feeling lingers for me. (laughs) Hardcore lingers for me. This is like my fourth or fifth time watching this episode before I recorded this podcast. And I very much still felt that way. Well, guys, I was validated when I read the script for 604. Luke Skelhas wrote this episode. Now, Luke Skelhas, I think that he is very talented, but he does have a tendency to have a disjointed feeling to his episodes sometimes. And I felt like that was the case with this. And one of the comments that he left in the script was he was talking about, I really loved in the books how they did the ether testing with Josiah and Lizzie. And there was the scene with Malva and Claire. And I really loved that moment. And we were looking for a place to fit it into the episodes. It didn't seem to fit in any of the eight episodes that we had outlined, but I made sure to squeeze it in here. Literally, guys, that's what he said in the script comments. And I just sat back when I read that. And I was like, yeah, and it feels that way too. Like, don't force something into an episode because you really want it there. It needs to go into an episode because it belongs there. And this, I'm sorry, did not belong there. There are a couple other times that this happens in this season. I will talk about those moments in those particular episodes. But this is not the first time or the last time that I will feel this way when I'm recording these podcasts, I promise you. But it really just validated all my concerns about this episode. As great as some of the storyline was, there were some really hard pass moments for me. I'm just like, "Mm, no, that should have been cut out. That really should have been cut out. And then when I was reading the script and I saw some of the things that got cut in place of these scenes, these random ass scenes that don't belong in the episode, I was really bitter because there were some good scenes that got trimmed down for time in this episode and then those scenes got kept. So I'll leave it there. But yes, that is my bitch session for 604. Now we're going to talk about some of the really great stuff that I loved because like I said, this was a good episode. There were lots of good meaty chunks. It reminded me a lot of, and I know I'm probably going to get some like, (gasps) when I say this, it reminded me a lot of creme de menthe because as much as I don't like the episode creme de menthe, it actually does have some really good chunks in it that I actually really like. There are some disdainful moments in that episode, but there are also some really good ones. And so that's kind of the similar feeling that I have with 604. Not quite on the same level because I do like 604 more than I like Crumb de Menthe, but similar vibes going on here. The title of this episode, Hour of the Wolf, The episode title is also the chapter title for the chapter when Emily miscarries Isabel. But I also feel like it's very fitting for a lot of what we see in this episode because the hour of the wolf is a time 
in the dead of night, I think it's between midnight and sunrise when most people die. And so when we are watching that part of this episode and we see Ian so desperate to be with Emily in that moment and they're like, no, it's no place for you. The women have her. If you need to go do something, go to the woods and pray. And he does. He's stumbling around the woods. He's praying and he says, please don't let this be the hour of death. So that is really, I think, the primary reason that they named this episode what they did. However, I think it's also fitting that it's called The Hour of the Wolf because the episode is an hour long and it is also an episode that encompasses the relationship between Ian and Emily. Emily being from the Wolf Clan and Ian's name in Mohawk being Wolf's brother. It's all about that relationship. And so I think it's very fitting that they named that episode this. Ian's story is the huge portion of this episode. It's the primary function is for us to understand what happened to Ian in that time while he was with the Mohawk. When he came back to the ridge, he was a very changed person from the young man that we left at the end of season four. Noticeably so. I'll never forget after Famous Last Words aired and I was discussing with my family over dinner what they thought of the new episode, I remember my brother said, you can really tell in this episode that while Ian's been gone, he went through some shit. And I do think that John Bell does a fantastic job of showing Ian's grief. And I love that he read ahead in the books a little bit so that he could understand that grief and portray it accurately. Because I feel like if you don't fully understand what Ian went through and you're trying to show this emotion on screen, you have an uninformed performance. So I'm glad that he kind of read ahead and did his homework and had that backstory in his head of he was with his wife. They had two miscarriages. He got kicked out of the Mohawk and sent packing, basically. It's a very traumatic series of events for Ian, for sure. We start out this episode basically right where we left off with the season four finale. This is something that we see over and over and over again in this season is we are taking moments where we left a space in a previous season and we're rewinding and filling in the gap. So I love that pattern that we're filling in the characters blank spaces in this season. So we pick up this episode with the adoption ceremony that Ian undergoes to be taken into the Mohawk tribe. After he does the gauntlet at the end of season four and he is accepted into the tribe, this is them washing away his old life. As this scene is taking place, we keep getting shots of this young woman standing next to her mother on the shore. And Ian makes eye contact with her at the end of that ceremony. It's a ceremony that I find really cool in that Ian kind of feels like he belongs in the Native American community. We really saw that in season four, his interest building and peaking, how much time he was spending with John Quincy Myers up in the mountains, trading with the Cherokee. So we saw that building and then all of a sudden he gives himself up for Roger and we lost him. But that sense of curiosity and sense of belonging didn't leave Ian. Whenever we watch this adoption ceremony, they use the words, you are flesh of our flesh 
and bone of our bone, something that should be very familiar to him. It's a Gallic custom for blood vows at weddings. We saw it with Jamie and Claire. That's where we get the blood of my blood and bone of my bone. So I think that we're really starting to understand that The Native American culture is not that different from the Scottish Highlander culture that we have seen previously in this series. It's a line that's drawn a lot in the book series that's not as heavily weighed in the show, but this is the show's way of kind of showing that connection and maybe making us understand a little bit why Ian feels such a connection to the Native Americans. And Jamie feels that connection as well on a level. And so I think that's why he gets along so well as an Indian agent because he does feel a kinship between himself and the Cherokee. We go through the credits and we finally get to Ian's story, one that is really hard to watch for some people, understandably so, because of the topics that it reaches. But it also gives us a whole other level to our sympathy for him. He falls in love with this young girl that he can't say her Mohawk name, so he just calls her Emily, which makes her laugh. It's really cool because we don't see it coming because we're in Ian's perspective. He's drawn to her and likes spending time with her. She's sweet. She's good with her hands. And all of a sudden, one day, they're by the river and she hands him this totem that she's been working on. It is this really cool little piece of soapstone or some sort of river stone that's been carved into a wolf totem. It's just super cool. And the fact that anybody can make that just blows my mind. And she gives it to him. He really loves that because as much as he's been learning the culture, there's a part of him that probably still doesn't quite feel like he belongs. And after that moment, when Emily hands him the wolf, Ian voices over as things start to change, he says, I was becoming one of them. And we touch on his growing relationship with Kahe Loten, which is one of those familiar faces that we see reprising his role. We saw him a lot in season four. He's the Mohawk that took Roger captive up to the Mohawk village. He's played by Braden Clark. I really think he's a fantastic actor. I was so glad to see him come back. His character takes the place of a character in the book known as Sun Elk. And I had a feeling that they might bring Kaheloten back versus introducing Sun Elk just for continuity's sake. It's a lot easier to kind of point to him and say, yeah, we know who he is. We know what his history is. So really cool to see that he and Ian developed this friendship and this brotherhood. There's a couple of things that are mentioned in this conversation with Kaheloten and Ian. The first we get mention of Joey Yoon's child, which back in 412, we saw her and Father Alexander being burnt at the stake. Like she crawled onto the pyre with him and Roger threw the whiskey on. So that was the woman that Kaheloten was in love with. But we learn that his feelings didn't matter because she had chosen someone different. And that confuses Ian a little bit. He was like, okay, so who do you choose? Kaheloten looks at him and says, we don't choose. They choose. And he points to the wolf that Ian is wearing as a necklace that Emily gave him. And that's when we really understand at the exact same moment that Ian understands that this culture is very different. The women choose 
who they are with, how long they are with him. And when they are tired of the relationship, they can call it quits. The men don't really have as much say in the Mohawk culture as they do in European cultures. We're really starting to get a vibe for how things are going. And we see Ian and Emily's relationship progress. And one thing that is carried as a through line throughout this episode is Emily teaching Ian how to speak Mohawk. It's a really cool thing that I kind of just connected while watching this episode. It's not like we get one scene of her teaching him how to say certain words. She teaches him how to say flower. They're laying in bed and they're working on his pronunciation and things. And it really clicked with me that Emily is the embodiment of Ian's connection to the Mohawk. By helping him to understand and be able to speak the language, she helps him to understand the world around him, both literally and figuratively. She is kind of his axis that he revolves around. We also see that kind of portrayed in the way that their love scene was shot. It was a beautiful piece of cinematography with the inky black in the background. So we see Ian and we see Emily making love. And with the way the lighting is, they're in stark contrast with their background. You really do get the feeling that Ian's world revolves around this woman when it comes to his involvement with the Mohawk. And without her, it's really a darker place than he wants his life to be. He really does center his world around her. And I felt like that was a really good way to look at that love scene because at the end, she bends over him and covers him with her body. She almost shields him from the harsher realities of the Mohawk culture. I think we do finally understand that in context whenever we get the end scene after two miscarriages when Emily's mother steps in and says, look, it's not working out. The Mohawk myth of bearing children is that the man's spirit must do battle with the woman's spirit and overcome hers in order to plant his seed and grow a child. And if the man's spirit is not strong enough, the woman cannot carry the child. That wounds Ian in a completely different way and that he now views himself as weak and he carries that with him after everything happens and he leaves the Mohawk. It's something that he struggles with for a very long time until he's able to talk to Jamie about it and really understand his feelings on a deeper level. So it does impact him a lot, those words, combined with what has happened. Granted, it's not the only thing that Ian is struggling with, but seeing that belief put so bluntly before him really shows you how much Emily was almost softening the Mohawk culture for him. And at the end of the day, Ian does make his peace with it. It's a beautiful arc over the course of this episode. I know that whenever they were doing interviews with a lot of the cast, they're like, oh, my character has a beautiful arc this season. And a lot of these, it's an arc over one episode or an arc over two episodes. And I really felt like the brunt of Ian's story took place in this episode this season. He does make his peace eventually after a lot of long talks with Uncle Jamie, which, you know, Uncle Jamie's a great person to talk to. He's been through some shit in his life too. And I think if anybody can give it good advice, it's probably him. That is one of the huge things 
that I saw with this episode really in stark contrast when I was doing my rewatch for this podcast was all of the through lines that are being drawn between Ian and Jamie. The first time that I really just tilted my head and was like, hmm, I've heard that before, was when Ian and Emily are laying in bed. Ian says to her, sometimes you didn't need words. And he's got his hand on her belly. In that simple sentence, it just encompasses everything he's feeling. So much love and completeness in his wife, in this child that they're expecting. And then she looks at him and says, do you ever miss your home? And he says, you are my home. And Jamie says the exact same thing to Claire in The Reckoning when he's talking about how he's really been looking forward to going back to Lollybrock and now he doesn't see how that could possibly happen, how he's ever going to get back there. But it doesn't grieve him as much as it once did because he's found a new home and he says, you are my home now. So it's drawing that parallel between Ian and Emily and Jamie and Claire, which is ironic because in the conversation when Ian asks Jamie, do you think I was weak? Should I have fought for her? He says, would you have fought for Auntie Claire? And Jamie looks at him and says, it's not the same thing, lad. And you know, I really was trying to think what that meant. Because there's got to be a reason that it's in there. There was uproar across the fandom. Like they didn't really think it was fair for Jamie to say that Ian's love is not on the same playing field as Jamie's love for Claire. It's really harsh judgment to say that. And I don't think that's how Jamie meant it. I think what Jamie meant is that Emily comes from a very different culture than Claire did. And so when it comes to fighting for them, it's not the same thing. Emily decided that she was done. Ian respected that. He did fight, but when he saw that it's actually what she wanted, he took a step back, devastated, of course, but realized that there was no changing her mind. This is what she wanted. And as part of the Mohawk culture, that was the expectation. If he had fought any harder for her, it probably would have had some pretty serious consequences. And so I think that's what Jamie meant in that it's not the same. It's not that Ian loved Emily any less than Jamie loves Claire. It's just that it was two very different set of circumstances. Another cool connection that I found between Ian and Jamie in this episode was when Ian decides to tell Jamie what happened and they're sitting in the hut on opposite sides of the fire. They're just sitting there in comfort with each other in silence. And Jamie is waiting so patiently for Ian to speak. And that moment really threw me back to 508 when Ian is sleeping in the breezeway because he hasn't slept anywhere as fancy a house as the big house in a long time. And he doesn't feel comfortable there. And so he sleeps in the breezeway with Rolo. And Jamie's like, what are you doing out? here. And they proceed to have a conversation where Ian says, I didn't have the words, which is a cool connection to him telling Emily that he doesn't have the words, but in two completely different set of circumstances. So you've got one with feelings of love so strong that he's fit to burst and he doesn't have the words to describe that and it's not needed. And in this set of circumstances, his feelings of grief and loss and pain and longing are so intense that he'd 
couldn't possibly find words strong enough to describe what he's going through. So we see that parallel, but then we also see how in that scene in 508, seeing how distraught Ian was, Jamie sits down and says, well, I think I'll just sit here for a bit if that's okay with you. And Ian just nods and they just sit there. And that's really what this scene reminded me of because this is something that they have history doing, just sitting there and waiting for one of them to be willing to talk to the other person. There's no pressure involved. It's very fluid and open and I'm here when you need an ear to listen. So it was a beautiful moment and I love that they cut between all the flashbacks of Ian's story with the mohawk to Jamie's face as Ian is so painfully telling this story and Jamie's so sympathetic and his heart is shattering for his nephew and you can see it on Sam's face. It adds a whole other layer to the desperation you feel as a viewer just wanting to give these people hugs because all the empathy and grief and just emotional agony that these people are going through. It's awful. When Ian tells Jamie that his daughter died, Jamie knew that Ian had lost a child because of what he overheard Ian telling Marsali in 602. But hearing it from Ian, the whole unadulterated story of his life with the Mohawk and what led to the loss of his daughter really hits home for Jamie on a level that he wasn't expecting to feel. I mean, 100% you feel sympathy for your nephew and you don't ever want somebody you love to have to go through that kind of loss. But when you have suffered something very similar to what the person that you love has suffered, it hits you so hard in the feels you feel like you can't even breathe. It's just a gut punch. All you want to do is take that pain away. You don't want them to feel it. You don't want them to have to deal with it because you know what that feels like and you wouldn't wish that feeling on your worst enemy, let alone somebody that's very dear to you. Sam did a great job of portraying that through this episode that it's really bringing up some intense memories for Jamie that he probably hasn't really thought about in a lot of detail for 25, 30 years at this point. And so to kind of have to rehash that and relive the loss of faith and everything that he and Claire went through, that kind of pain that they experienced really must just be like taking a dagger to an old wound and cutting it back open. Just so awful. And the scene that we get with Jamie and Ian next to the river, where we really start to understand something else that Ian is dealing with, not just grief over the loss of his daughter, but a deep-seated fear that his daughter's soul is out there wandering alone with no one to help her. As a parent, he feels that and he wishes that he could protect her so much. And Jamie sees that. Jamie sees that it's not just the loss that's eating at him. It's the fear that she's out there lost somewhere. It really makes me wonder if Jamie had similar feelings. I mean, we know 100% that Jamie wondered if his daughter was dead because of him, like if he was responsible for her death. We know that. And that's where you really see the connection between Jamie and Ian in this scene. Yeah, there are a lot of parallels between their characters and their situation, but where the connection really comes in is that emotional response to things that Ian are saying and knowing that Jamie probably likely felt the same way at some point in his life. 
So originally in the books, this scene that takes place by the river between Jamie and Ian was not between Jamie and Ian at all. It was actually between Brianna and Ian, where she asks Frank to look over Isabel. This is one example of when I think the show does a fantastic job of reworking things. It doesn't really change the structure of the story at all, but I think it refines the curve of the story a little bit, the arc. It would have been so hard to kind of justify writing an entire episode between Brienne and Ian where they go on this long hike and have this bonding experience. It would have been really hard to justify that just to get to this point in the story where Ian tells Brianna everything. Whereas Ian and Jamie already have a bond. And I think that this episode really goes a long way towards reconnecting some of the missing threads. Since Ian came back to the ridge, there was kind of a disconnect between him and Jamie. It used to be a really close bond. And, you know, Jamie views Ian as a son in a lot of ways. And so that must have been really difficult for both of them. Like they were trying to reconnect and have this relationship, but because there was so much that Ian didn't feel like he could share with Jamie at the time, it just wasn't working. And so now we use this episode as a way to reconnect these two characters into a really strong relationship moving forward into the rest of the season. So Ian's pouring his heart out to Jamie about his fears over Isabel's soul because she wasn't baptized. She wasn't named even. So how on earth could she be in heaven? Jamie says this fantastic line, one of the best moments of the season as far as I'm concerned, when Jamie looks at Ian and he says, my daughter, Faith, she was also lost. And I never held her either. I didn't have an answer. Only at the end of life comes death. And after death, we come home to the Lord. How long the first shall last, we cannot say. It's that moment where you really feel these souls coming back together again. And Ian almost has this look of relief on his face at finding someone who truly understands what he's going through. Like he's been carrying this burden all alone, thinking there was no one in his life that he could share it with that could truly understand his pain. And there's his uncle right in front of him, been there the whole time. But I don't think Ian had any idea that Jamie and Claire had lost a daughter. So that I think was a little bit of a shock, but also, like I said, a relief because finally he had someone who understood. And I think that a lot of Ian's pain in that moment is also the fact that why did God choose to give Emily and Kahilotan a son and took his girl? That must be a real catalyst to his crisis of faith that we see. It's interesting because when Ian goes to the woods and prays after the scene where Emily begins to miscarry their daughter. He first prays to God and the Virgin Mary, and then kind of as an afterthought, prays to the Mohawk gods. And I think that may even be a source of guilt for him because he too realizes that there are these two sides of him warring back and forth. He's not 100% Mohawk, no matter how much he thinks he should be. He's always going to be Ian Murray. That goes back to the season four finale when he decides that he's going to stay with the Mohawk and Jamie looks at him and says, remember, and he promises he will not forget. What Jamie's asking him to remember in that moment is who he is 
deep down. That sort of promise is part of the reason that there's so much friction because the Mohawk, especially this one woman, Emily's mother, I believe, doesn't believe that Ian is fully Mohawk because he hasn't fully given up his white self. So I think that in a lot of ways, Ian wonders if him warring between the two sides of himself in some way was the reason that his daughter died. So at the end of this episode, when Ian and Jamie are getting ready to leave the Indian village and Ian lets the necklace go that Emily gave him into the river and the river carries off the totem, it was a moment where Ian finally realized that there's two halves to himself, Wolf's brother and Ian Murray. All this time he's been trying to figure out who he was. Which one was he really? Was he really Wolf's brother or was he really Ian Murray? That's something that he talked to Malva about in the last episode was... I don't know if this is my place, how long I'll be here on the ridge, because he doesn't really know if that's where he belongs anymore. But what he comes to realize through talking to Jamie and by making his peace with Kahiloten is that God deemed that this would happen, that this is what was meant to be. And I think Jamie summed that up really well when he says, I've been known by many names, lad. Call yourself whatever you want. All that matters is what's in here. And he taps him on the chest. It's so good. And it's such a neat little bow on Ian's story. I really, really liked how they chose to end that. Not to mention the symbolism of the river and both of these scenes taking place by the river, the beginning scene with the adoption ceremony and Ian having his previous life washed away by being scrubbed with the sand and washed down the river. And then in this scene at the end, you've got Ian letting the wolf totem go into the water and drift away in the water. Like he's letting his previous life drift away and all of the hurt and anguish that he felt with that life and embracing his new self where he can be both sides of himself. So in this episode, we actually got a Jamie and Bree scene, guys. And I know we got one in the last episode, but they kind of do tie together because in the last episode, Bree called Jamie Atlas, and like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And in this episode, it's flipped because... Jamie sees Brie looking like she's got the weight of the world on her shoulders and he comes up to her and says, what's on your mind, lass? Tell me. They're really looking at each other as their sounding boards and their source of relief from the stress that they're feeling, which I love this relationship that's building between the two of them. This is where the truth really comes out because Claire didn't know much about the Native Americans when Jamie asked her about them in 602. But now is when we start to get the details coming in from Brianna. I thought it was really strange that Jamie didn't seek out her advice in the first place because why would Claire know? Brie would know. She was a history major before she went to become an engineer at MIT. So she, if anybody, would know these things. And Jamie comes to learn about the Trail of Tears that will happen 60 years from now when most of the Native Americans will be removed from their lands towards the east of the United States and pushed west onto reservations, removed thousands of miles from their home where 8,000 of them will die along the way. Seeing this connection that's being made between the Native Americans and the Kingsmen, I think that this historically would have gone a lot differently if the British had won the American Revolution, but you can wonder all you want, but there's no way you're ever going to know. And it's like 
Jamie saw with Scotchy, this purchasing of land and moving across the treaty line was already happening before the conclusion of the American Revolution. So it probably would have happened anyway, but it still is a what if moment for sure. And it's like Bree says that she didn't feel it was right for Jamie to go to these people and give them these rifles and forge these connections without really knowing what was going to happen to these people. And the whole reason that the Native Americans wanted the guns in the first place was because they wanted to be able to defend themselves. Well, how do you use 20 rifles to defend yourself against 20,000 soldiers? There's just no way that you can do it. And so I love that Jamie finds a way to tell Chief Bird what is in their future. And this is one of the ways in which Diana Gabaldon kind of takes the greatest mysteries of history and twists them and kind of answers the question through her own story's mythology, which I think is really cool because the Snowbird Cherokee are actually a, a very real group of Native Americans that escaped the Trail of Tears by going into the mountains and hiding and pretending they weren't there until the Trail of Tears had completely moved on. And so... They're still there to this day. And it is really cool that Diana takes that and writes it into her own story and makes it so that time travelers changed this little bit of history by giving this band of Cherokee a heads up on it. I like that Jamie forms this bond with Bird because over the exchange of the rifles, you know, he's duty bound to relay the message that the king and the governor would like an oath of loyalty sworn to them in exchange for these rifles. And Jamie says, I would like your loyalty as well. Like, it would be so cool if we were allies type thing. On the surface, of course, we see Jamie as a representative of the crown, which is what other people would see. But we also see the double meaning to it as viewers, where we know what side Jamie will eventually be on. Jamie is hoping that by doing the right thing, he's going to gain Bird's trust so that when it matters most, he'll have a really good ally himself. In doing the right thing and telling Bird about what's going to befall his people, I think he does really gain respect from Chief Bird in a way that I don't think Jamie even really expected to receive that respect and that loyalty. I think that relationship is sealed for them when Jamie says, whoever you fight with, be it King George's men or our enemies, fight for yourselves. These words really stick out as the actions of an honorable person. It's like, look, I know that my worldviews and your worldviews aren't always going to match up, but I'll be okay with whatever you decide. Just do what's best for you and your people, and I'll do what's best for me and my people. And that, I think, is something that really gets Chief Bird's attention more than anything. I love that they end this scene with something that could be construed as comical and definitely get a little bit of a chuckle out of people because in the whole time that Jamie and Ian are in the Cherokee village, it's a celebration of Chief Bird's marriage to his new wife that's been brought by some Cherokee and Scotchy from the Overhill Cherokee. I'm sure he paid a great deal for her and trade goods and all of that jazz, but Bird just casually asks Jamie, who the whole reason for this conversation is that his wife sees and dreams what is to come. And so I'm sure Bird views this as this super crazy ability and very useful, and he's wondering how much this wife of Jamie's cost him. You know, it's a moment of humor, but Jamie manages to twist it around as he always does as a slam dunk he says she cost me everything i had but she was worth it obviously she didn't cost him a dime but
but she cost him a lot more than that. And it was so worth it, in his opinion. Like, he would do anything for her. And I just love that. On a literal and figurative sense, here we go again with how much this woman means to Jamie Fraser. It's so great. So the last thing that I want to talk about in this episode before we move on to listener comments is the bookended love scenes between Jamie and Claire. After the main credits, we get a scene where Jamie and Claire are making love kind of off camera, but we can hear them having a good time. And then as they wrap up, the camera pans over to them and they have this very light banter where Jamie's referencing Grease Lightning. (laughs) And Claire says, actually, that saying refers to incredible speed versus lubricated brilliance. (laughs) And Jamie's like, well, I can be fast too. You know, they're just joking around and enjoying each other's presence. And it really shows this sense of complete and utter peace with these characters after the turmoil of the last episode to really show that they're in a good place. And it's a bit of humor in between as well, because in the background, as they're having this pillow talk, we get the sounds of Major McDonald sneezing up a storm peeing in a chamber pot. Claire says, poor Major McDonald, could you imagine being allergic to cats? (laughs) Jamie says, can you be allergic to house guests? Like, when is this guy gonna leave? So it's a very light scene showing you that all is well. And then we come back to Jamie and Claire at the end of this episode after everything that's happened with the Cherokee and with Ian kind of telling his story. We see them coming back to each other with so much that has changed, again, with a love scene that's almost a love scene, but definitely the beginnings of one. This is where we really get Jamie's predicament because through this entire episode, he's been helping Ian to kind of work through his identity crisis and who am I? And all this time, Jamie's subtly walking that line himself in that he knows what side he's going to have to be on. And he also knows that he has to try to do the right thing where the Cherokee are concerned, but he has a lot of other concerns as well. And so when Ian says to him that in his debate of whether he could be Wolf's brother or Ian Murray, he somehow learned how to be both. Jamie really probably thought about that the whole three or four days it took them to get home because it's really one of the first things that Jamie talks to Claire about. He's so exhausted after such a mentally draining trip. He tells Claire Ian's learned how to embrace both sides of himself, but I cannot be two things at once, Claire. A rebel, a loyalist, an agent for the crown, and an enemy of the king. It's tearing me apart. It's time to change horses. It's time to change horses. This is it. He can't be two things anymore. It's one of the main quotes of the season six trailer that hinted at this pivotal point in the season. And so it's perfect that it happened at the halfway point. This is really signaling I'm done trying to be perceived as something that I'm not. I'm ready to just come out and say it. I'm a rebel. And that's what Give Me Liberty is all about. The next episode, 605. So I really did love that revelation that was made. And then we get the ensuing love scene, which holy baby bump, Batman. This was one of the episodes where I was like, whoa, (laughs) this was filmed definitely like in the last block. 
I kind of played a game with myself all season on whether I could find it or not. And this episode was stark black and white. Yep, there's a baby bump there. And they did some clever cutting to kind of hide it. But in this love scene, the final one between Jamie and Claire, it was out there for the world to see. I just thought that was funny. It didn't change my perception of the scene or bother me at all or anything. But man, like if I was looking for it, there it was. So to end this episode, similar to the way that we started it, but with so much having changed in the middle, and then to end it with Malva watching Jamie and Claire have sex really adds this sinister level to it. Like, it's weird, it's creepy, something's off about this girl, something's going on. It's raising antennas, raising the red flags all over the place, and it really gives you this sense of foreboding moving on into the rest of the season. So I thought it was a great way to end the episode, for sure. Performance of the episode this week is for sure John Bell. He was phenomenal. Phenomenal. So good, especially in those moments when he and Sam were sitting there and he was relaying what happened and in the scene with him and Sam by the river. I felt like those were two of his best scenes of the whole episode. And quote of the episode is, whoever you fight with, be it King George's men or our enemies, fight for yourselves. Very good. That's really the whole story for Jamie this episode is him coming to the conclusion that I can't fight for other people anymore. I have to do what's best for me and my family. So by the end of the episode, that's really what his conversation with him and Claire is about when he says, I can't be two people at once and it's time to change horses. Alrighty, guys, that sums up my thoughts on 604 Hour of the Wolf. As always, I opened it up for you guys to let me know your thoughts on this episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Joan Cohen says, I'm so glad Ian's story got the focus it deserved so that we can really understand his journey in deep grief. The scenes of everyday life in the Mohawk village are well done, and the actress who portrayed Emily is lovely. It's great to see Ian truly in love, but it makes what happens happens later that much more painful. There were some nice callbacks to early scenes with Jamie and Claire, the words the chief speaks during the ceremony to wash away Ian's whiteness. You are flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. And Ian telling Emily, you are my home, reflects how Ian truly feels like he's found his place. It's not surprising that he's now struggling with his identity. I love that he can finally unburden himself to Jamie, knowing that Jamie understands him and is always there for him. The scene where he talks about Faith, how he never got to hold her, and then calls upon her to look after Ian's daughter gets to me every time. Hopefully Ian can now begin to heal. It was a beautiful scene, wasn't it? between Jamie and Ian. I love watching characters connect on that kind of level. And it also really brought tears to my eyes. I'm not a big crier, but this scene really got me. I could tell what Jamie was feeling and what Ian was feeling and that they were really having a moment. And it was so beautiful for Jamie to be able to kind of say, look, I went through the same thing and I have a daughter that's out there and I know she's in heaven and I'm going to tell her to look out for your daughter. Next comment is from Lauren Porter Wyrosh. She says, I'm a new book reader, so haven't made it far enough to learn Ian's story. I was excited to finally learn about some of his Mohawk life. It was heartbreaking, but I was so glad to know of it. Young Ian is one of my favorite characters, and I hated having so much mystery around his experience. It really was a lot of mystery. Like I said, I was hoping beyond hope they were going to cover it in season five, but I didn't possibly see how they were going to, knowing everything else they were going to have to cover. So I knew definitely we were going to have it to look forward to in season six, and I thought they actually did a really good job, to be honest. 
All right, final comment of the night is from Sandy Viglione Corsi. She said, I loved, loved, loved to learn Ian's story. I really like how it was presented and how Jamie listened and told Ian his story about Faith and how they prayed that Faith would find Ishabel. So touching. And in the end, how Ian said he was Scott and Mohawk, and Jamie said that he himself had many names, but it is what is in your heart that counts. The viewer watched how Ian became the man he is. The Mohawk showed him many things, but you could definitely see Jamie's influence on him. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I definitely feel like this episode really encompassed both sides of who Ian is. Definitely his Mohawk side, and it really makes you understand why he feels so connected to that part of his life. It's not just that he had a child with this woman and that he was married and had a life, but it was also this sense of camaraderie and family bond with these people that was all of a sudden just ripped away from him. So as much as he was grieving for the loss of Emily and Isabel, he was also grieving for the loss of his community. And you also see his Scottish side come out and how he handles things with Jamie and that familial bond as well. So you're really understanding who Ian is on a deeper level. And I think by connecting those threads and seeing how he views both sides of himself and the extensions of himself, his family, as one great community versus two different warring sides, I think that helps Ian in the end to understand who he is for sure. Alrighty, guys, that wraps up 604, Hour of the Wolf. Before you guys go, though, we got some interesting Outlander information this week. There's going to be a prequel series. We knew that some sort of spinoff was in the works. Weren't quite sure what it was. There were whisperings that it was going to be a prequel, and it is. It's going to be called Blood of My Blood, and it is based off of... Ellen and Brian's story. So Jamie's parents, it's going to cover how they met, how they fell in love, how they lived and laughed and cried together, the birth of their children, all of that. Diana's been working on this book for some time. No idea when it's going to be done. And honestly, that's kind of what makes me apprehensive about this prequel series is I don't know how I feel about a series being developed based on a book and characters that have haven't been published yet in the Gabaldon universe. So yeah, I'm very on the fence about it. I like the idea of a prequel, but at the same time, I feel like they should have gone for something like a Lord John Gray series so that we could develop characters further that are already in the main series versus kind of treading a dangerous line between book readers and show watchers. Like, I hate that my potential first impression of the prequel could be through the TV show. So I don't know. I mean, I will continue to cover any news on it that you can. And I guess it's just in development. It hasn't officially been greenlit yet. So I guess they are two different things. So nothing concrete yet. But stars did announce it this week, which was kind of odd, the timing on it as well. Lots of controversy around it. So yeah, that's the news in case you missed it. No Outlander season seven news. They're on hiatus from filming until the end of August, I believe. I'm hoping this means that they're going to split season seven into part one and part two so that we can get it sooner. 
Like I'm hoping, fingers crossed. I don't know if that's a in vain hope, but it's there nonetheless. Alrighty guys, that wraps up my episode for the week. Next week, I am doing my second edition of Droughtlander Book Club on The Last McLenna by Katherine Lowry Logan. That's gonna be on August 13th at 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time in my private group, TSF Obsessed Snacks. If you've read The Last McLenna and you would like to join my discussion, and you're not a member of TSF Obsassinacs, just go over to Facebook, search TSF Obsassinacs, and request to join. You just have to fill out the three admission questions and agree to follow the rules, and someone will approve your request shortly. Do make sure to request to join by 3 p.m. on the 13th, though, or otherwise I can't guarantee that your request will be approved in time for book club. And then after that, I am off for two long weeks. I'm heading over to Scotland to enjoy a nice, relaxing vacation. So lots of exciting stuff coming for the Sassnack Files, but my next episode analysis on 605 Give Me Liberty will not happen for approximately three weeks. Hope to see you guys on my book club next week. Until then, you guys stay safe out there, and I'll chat at you later. Bye. Bye.